there, good man. What shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we start Green Lantern Month here on Kirby's Kids. And our graphic novel of the month for this month is Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And our comic book character of the month is Green Lantern, John Stewart. Now, as you can imagine, with those two works, one, a foundational, seminal work, by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams with their Green Lantern, Green Arrow run. And then the John Stewart character having been birthed out of that run. You can only imagine that our comics archaeology episode today would be rich with wanting to know, hey, what was the genesis for this? What were the times with which this was being written. What were the influences involved? And luckily, we have a fantastic source to provide that insight, and that being none other than Denny O'Neill himself, and an essay that he penned for the Green Lantern 80 Years of the Emerald Knight Deluxe Edition, which came out in July of 2020. This essay, which essentially opens up this era of the Green Lantern that's dealt with, because as you can imagine, with 80 years of this comic book character, there's such a rich history. And DC did a great job of encapsulating certain eras and then inviting the voices of those eras to reflect on the Green Lantern character. So, Denny O'Neill, with this Green Lantern, Green Arrow run that he did with Neil Adams, gives us that insight, very similar to how we just experienced the Roy Thomas reflections on Conan, which subsequently was also being birthed at this exact same time. So, it's an amazing era with respect to comic book legacy and the important works that were being produced at that time. So, here is Social Justice by Dennis O'Neill. The temptation here is to cheat, to grin and shuffle and vamp until a respectable interval has passed, then quick bow and exit stage left without ever really saying anything. The reason is, I'm not sure these stories, or any stories, should be discussed. I think, perhaps, that stories should simply be enjoyed or not enjoyed, absorbed or forgotten. Archibald MacLeish said it, A poem should not mean, but be. I guess that honoring a publisher's request for a hasty reminiscence wouldn't do any harm, that is. It would impair your reaction to the stories themselves. I won't presume to judge quality, something I'm obviously not qualified to do anyway, but I can comment on what Green Lantern, Green Arrow series meant to one of its creators, me, and how it came to be. Of course, the question of how it came to be has two sets of answers. 
first large, historical, sociological, and a trifle cosmic. It has to do with those years marked indelibly in Deglo on the soul of anyone who experienced them and praised and damned 1960s. Although Green Lantern, Green Arrow was published in 1970 and 1971, the stories belong to the previous decade as surely as do Osley Acid, the Fillmore, protest marches, draft card burning, the Johnson presidency, and those innocent, arrogant naifs, the flower children. While they flourished, the 1960s were a period charged with exhilaration. The arts benefited from the gestalt of optimism and possibility, particularly the popular arts. Creativity, the flower children would say, is good, and so manifestations of creativity are good too. But anything tainted with the establishment, the university, was suspect. All these ponderous mainstream novels about middle-class mommies and daddies and their dreary hang-ups and music performed by a brigade of faceless penguins and illusion-ridden poetry full of foreign phrases, T.S. Eliot here and Ezra Pound there, draggy dread, who needed it? Only professional or professorial graybloods, livers of by-the-numbers lives who wouldn't recognize a sunbeam if it hit them, who knew only what they were supposed to know, not what they did know. For the rest of us, there was rock, the animal throb of Led Zeppelin, and the angelic Beatles, singers of poems that could be danced to, the science fiction writers rediscovering mythology, and the science and technology could be used exactly as bards once used magic to excite mystery and wonder. And even the journalists, Tom Wolfe and the younger Village Voice contributors and patriarchal Norman Mailer, jettisoning the who, what, where, when, why straitjackets and lending to fact the dazzle and insight once the exclusive property of fiction. Oh, the comic books. I didn't mention the comics, did I? Well, the 1960s provided comics with an audience. Not anonymous children bribed to decorum with a copy of Superman, but a cadre of knowledgeable, enthusiastic readers. Some were ordinary adults, rediscovering the joys of childhood, and some were anti-establishment rebels. More anti-establishment than the comics you couldn't get. For 20 years, the Greybloods employed the term comic book as a synonym for functional illiterate and a few saw them at worse than trashy debasers of youthful sensibilities, corruptors of morals. With enemies like these, comics had to have a friend in the anti-establishment counterculture. But I think their appeal was deeper than the cultural mutiny. Comics offered color, flamboyance, legend, fantasy, humor, the highest of high adventure, Things missing from the lives of kids whose usual amusement was a slice-of-life sitcom on a 17-inch monochromatic screen and, for that matter, from the lives of adults who had just lived through the Leiden-Eisenhower era. 
The national mood of playfulness and gray blood's disdain made it socially acceptable to like what the comics had to offer. Meanwhile, the comics and their staple characters, the superheroes, had changed from their crudely energetic beginnings. The form, which has been termed comic strip, sequential art, panel art, had existed since 1895 as a newspaper feature and as a newsstand commodity since the mid-1930s. It had evolved rules, conventions, formats, a rough aesthetic, a special language that meddled image and word into a single unit of information. By trial and error, mostly the earlier practitioners had learned to use that language and a generation had grown up learning from their successes and mistakes. The content of that language had been inspired by or borrowed from the pulp magazines. The American blue-collar literature that eased the working man's lot with stories of crime, cowboys, adventure, frequently in erotic climes, and fantasy masquerading as science fiction, all flavored with the tall tale tradition of the frontier. That hadn't altered much. That was still what people bought when they bought comics. But characterizations had gotten perhaps a bit subtler. Plots a bit more sophisticated. I suggest that writers and artists were becoming aware of their medium's potential. A potential already realized by such diverse talents as Will Eisner, Milton Caniff, and George Harriman. They may also have started to become aware of genuinely appreciative readership and decided these people were worth some effort. That is what I consider the state of comics to have been in 1970. I'd been working as a freelance writer for five years, the previous 18 months for DC Comics when my favorite editor, Julie Schwartz. But wait, I've sketched the era and the comic book industry, the background, and we've arrived. It's the place where I must describe how a particular series, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, came to be. I've got to tender the second set of answers I mentioned earlier, so I must enter a hesitant disclaimer. At the time, I wasn't taking notes or keeping a diary, or even paying a lot of attention. Like most young men, I was ad-libbing my life. Consequently, others may remember details differently. There are my memories, and they're not pure. Either because I've recounted them at parties, conventions, interviews, and on headier afternoons talk shows, and I've edited them to fit the audience on each of hundreds of occasions. Who knows what I may have omitted so frequently as it is to lose it entirely? I feel like a physicist tracking a single electron. I can promise only a very sincere approximation of the truth. With that in mind, Julius Schwartz asked me to do something with Green Lantern. Sales of the title were slipping. Apparently, and there were reasons not to cancel it. I'm not guessing what those reasons may have been. The business of comic book publishing was unusually chaotic at the time, and sometimes decisions seemed to be made by consulting a drunken fortune teller. One editor resigned after his boss justified a position by citing three different sales figures for the same magazine within 45 minutes. For me, the assignment was unusually interesting and potentially exciting. I had an idea. 
For a while, I'd been wondering if it might be possible to combine my various professional and personal concerns. Before migrating to New York, I'd worked on a Midwestern daily, and before that, I'd edited a Navy newspaper. In 1967, I produced a short book on presidential elections, and I was regularly contributing political and social reportage to a news magazine. I suppose I considered myself as much of a journalist as a fiction writer. And there, in the reporter fabulous combination, was a glimmer. The new journalists, Wolf, Mailer, Jimmy Breslin, Pete Hamlin, Gene Miller, Hunter S. Thompson, these men I admired tremendously. Weren't they combining fiction techniques with reporting? Could a comic book equivalent of the new journalism be possible? Probably not. But something? Not fact. Not current events. Presented in panel art. Rooted in the issues of the day? Now, there was a possibility. I was peripherally involved in those issues. A non-distinction I shared with millions of liberal, vaguely well-meaning people of middle-class origin. I signed petitions, I went to marches, I argued against the war and supported Martin Luther King Jr. I subscribed to Ramparts and the Catholic Worker. I lived in the East Village and consorted with some of the headline makers, David Miller, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, Dorothy Day, Paul Krasner, and I would have insisted I shared their aspirations. But I was not like them. I lacked their capacity for involvement. I was not a leader. I had the charisma of library paste. I was skinny, shy, self-effacing, and some killer shark personal problems I had yet to recognize. However, I was getting published every month in comic books. And suddenly I was being asked to revamp Green Lantern. It was an opportunity to stop lurking at the edges of social movements I admired and participate by dramatizing their concerns. The question was, how? Okay, try this. What would happen if we put a superhero in a real-life setting dealing with real-life problem? Begin with the character. Green Lantern was, in effect, a cop. An incorruptible cop, to be sure, but with noble intentions. But still, a cop. A crypto-fascist. He took orders. He committed violence at the behest of commanders whose authority he did not question. If you showed him a law being broken, his instinct would be to strike at the lawbreaker without ever asking any whys. Wasn't this the mentality that sent American troops into Korea and Vietnam? That brought federal marshals' clubs down on the heads of lunch counter protesters? Wasn't this the cowboy authoritarianism responsible for the mess we were in? Not that Green Lantern was evil. He or any of the other heroes who championed the 19th century America at the expense of 20th century justice and at the expense of the environment and perhaps the survival of the planet. No, nor were their flesh and blood counterparts evil. They just never had cause to doubt their assumptions. All right, there was a place to begin. I give them doubts. As I mulled possible plots, I realized that Green Lantern needed a foil, someone to argue with. Green Arrow was the logical choice, and not because of their first names either. Green Arrow, GA for short, was the utility infielder of DC's heroes. He'd been in existence since 1941, but he'd never been considered popular enough to warrant being given his own title. 
For the past several years, he'd been in Justice League of America, which was functioning in part as a sort of holding company for characters who had lost their own magazines during a marketing recession. Has-beens, like Hawkman, and never quite wases like G.A., I'd taken advantage of his fluid status in the Justice League story, had him lose his fortune, and in so doing, precipitate his friends into a crisis. He'd been given permission to do this because none of the editors at DC seemed to care about him. Nobody had a vested interest in GA's status quo. Coincidentally, Neil Adams had altered G.A.'s appearance, redesigned his costume, given him a beard while illustrating a story Bob Haney wrote for The Brave and the Bold. So Green Arrow had a new wardrobe and new lifestyle already. Why not give him new characterization? Particularly since the old one was so undefined that nobody really knew what it was. He could be a lusty, hot-tempered, anarchist with contrast with the cerebral, sedate, model citizen who was Green Lantern. They would form the halves of a dialogue on the issues we chose to dramatize. We would dramatize issues. We would not resolve them. We were not in the polemic business. I was smart enough to know enormously complex problems couldn't be dissected within the limitations of a 25-page comic book, and humble enough to know that I didn't have solutions anyway. Still, I cherished the notion that these stories might be socially useful. I could hope they might awaken youngsters, eight or nine years old, to the world's dilemmas, and these children, given such an early start, might be able to find solutions in their maturity. My generation and my father's had grown up ignorant. My sons didn't have to. Maybe I could help a little. It's necessary to guess at exactly what happened after we decided that Green Arrow was to be Green Lantern's co-star. Probably I submitted became unnecessary. We established such a rapport that I could tell him briefly what I wanted to do and he would trust me to produce printable material as I would trust him to correct my mistakes. When I wrote, No Evil Shall Escape My Sight, I must have felt giddy with liberation. It was as though the angel Gabriel appeared and said the commandments didn't apply to me any longer. I was being told to break the rules. I didn't have to worry about writing stuff that couldn't possibly offend anyone anymore. Anywhere at any time. A stricture that had shackled comic book writers terribly since the early 1950s. And though I didn't realize it, I was to be given another liberty implicitly forbidden to comic book writers. My characters could change, would change, all of them. The alteration of Green Arrow from Playboy to Anarchist was only the beginning. Events would transform their perceptions and personalities. I wasn't sure being allowed drama and a rich gift it was. These liberties would confer on me a final and splendid gift. I would be able to put into Green Arrow's speeches some of my own feelings, some of the pain and the bewilderment recent events had caused. The comic book form could be, for the duration of the assignment, a means of self-expression, as well as a means of amusing strangers. How wonderful! 
It would be like writing those first short stories when I was a teenager. The excitement of making a narrative from raw material the soul provides, which is, to the fledgling writer, its own incomparable reward. Of course, rules can protect as well as restrict. Without them, it would be dancing naked, and I would have few excuses for failure. But I wasn't considering risks. I was satisfied that I had done a worthy script, and I was reasonably certain Gil Kane's drawings would complement my prose. I expected him to do an especially nice job with the rooftop scene in which the ancient black man introduces Green Lantern to ghetto bitterness. The three panels concluding that scene are among the most reproduced panels in comic book history, but Gil didn't draw them. Instead, no evil shall escape my sight, went to a relative newcomer, Neil Adams. Again, I don't know why, but Neil did get the assignment instead of Gil, the regular Green Lantern artist, and that was an extension of what was to me a gloriously satisfying collaboration, begun about a year earlier with some Batman stories. Neil was wonderful. He consistently equaled or exceeded the pictures my mind formed while I was writing the stories. Every time he did it, Every one of the 150 images in the story would be better than I had imagined it. To see my description so totally realized was a spooky and stunning experience. And I think it inspired me to innovate, to improve. I felt confident that Neil would be there for me. Neil would deliver. And Neil did. On Green Lantern, Green Arrow, as well as Rajagul and Talia Saga, we did for Batman and Detective Comics titles. He is an immensely gifted individual with his own approach to comic art, basically a realist whose imagination can stretch the parameters of things as they are to include the extravagant and fantastic. If superheroes existed, he once told me, they'd have to look the way I draw them. We are vastly different people, Neil Adams and me. A few years ago, we were together in Chicago on a public relations junket. After a full day in Neil's company, I began to realize we agreed on nothing, zero, zip, from which movies to watch on the hotel's closed-circuit television, to the merits of the paintings hanging on the Art Institute, to which the pretty women strolling on Michigan Avenue would most likely enjoy discussing Schoffenhammer with. While we were actually collaborating, though, we hummed in unison, like tuning forks, our psyches were twins. Only the best marriages approximate the closeness of such an artist pairing, as marriages have an alarming tendency to culminate in divorce. Close collaborations generate jealousy, rivalry, and pettiness. Neil and I never became actively hostile, but the relationship did get strained and edgy toward the end. It might have gotten worse had we continued working exclusively with each other. We didn't. Green Lantern Green Arrow was canceled after a run of 13 issues, not counting a reprint, number 88, that Julie had to include because of a deadline problem. We had every reason to believe that the series was a huge success. It was mentioned in hundreds of newspapers and magazines. It got us invited to universities and television shows. It brought in heaps of mail. The response was overwhelmingly favorable. We received a few hate letters and veiled threats, but even those were perversely flattering. I'll always welcome bigots as enemies. As Joseph Conrad said, you shall judge a man by his foes as well as his friends. Despite all the attention, however, the series was abruptly discontinued. 
Bad sales were given for the reason, but bad sales were always given for the reasons for everything. Perhaps the drunken fortune teller had gazed into her crystal and frowned. For perhaps the sales were bad. I doubt that I'll ever know any more than I'll ever know the true origin of the universe, the mermaid song, or what it's like to actually read Marcel Proust. I don't like to think of these stories often. They are a relic of a person I'll never be again, of a time as spiritually remote as Pleistocene. To gaze at them would be to look in the wrong direction. But I'm glad they exist, and I hope you enjoy them. Signed, Dennis O'Neill. Dennis O'Neill began his career as a comic book writer in 1965 at Charlton, where then-editor Dick Giordano assigned him to several features. When Giordano moved to D.C., O'Neill soon followed. At D.C., O'Neill scripted several series for Giordano and Julius Schwartz, quickly becoming one of the most respected writers in comics. Besides being the most important Batman writer of the 1970s, O'Neill served as an editor at both Marvel and DC. After a long tenure as group editor of the Batman line of titles, he retired to write full-time. There is no better way to establish the context, the history, from which a series started than to have its own originator, its writer, provide his reflections and insights. And that's Denny O'Neill's essay, Social Justice, which opens up Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And we hope you will join us for that read. This month's graphic novel on Kirby's Kids. All is lost. Not while I'm standing. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. We chose wisely when we offered you the ring. Thank you, John Stewart.